0: For our teaching today, we'll continue to focus on the story of Sodom and Amorah. Um, So, just very quickly, I'll summarize it for you, and then I'll ask um, those of you who want to participate to unmute yourselves um, and tell us um, the function that this story plays in our Torah narrative. Why is it that you think that this story is here at this time? Okay, so um, just to refresh your memories, God has a problem that these towns are full of evil people and what does god want to do god wants to rain fire down on these two towns and destroy them interestingly before doing that you know like god does in the story of noah where god just brings the flood without asking anybody if god should god thinks that god should go to abraham because they now have this beautiful covenantal relationship. Abraham is going to be the leader of a nation and should understand how it is to make good decisions based on sound judgment toward a vision of justice. So God decides to loop Abraham into this conversation to tell Abraham what God's plans are. Abraham does something very interesting as well, asks God, um, Is this the way that you want to be the arbiter of justice? Um, And how does Abraham begin this conversation with God? By saying, okay, we're making the assumption that everybody in these towns is evil. What if there are 50 good people, or 45, or 40, or 35, or 30? What if we can find some good people that might redeem the rest of them? Would that be a reason to not destroy the towns? What if there are a group of 10? As we know the way the story goes, God ultimately does destroy Sodom and Amarah, but not before Lot um, coaxes his family to escape. We all know what happens with Lot's wife. Um, she looks back and turns into a pillar of salt. So it's not such a happy ending for his family. And we know it's not a happy ending for, for Sodom and Amarah that, end up, that God ends up destroying them. Um, so like I said, in my Torah introduction, one of the functions of this story is to contrast it with Abraham's radical hospitality at the beginning of our Parsha that these people, instead of welcoming guests, actually put them in danger. Um, But if you have another idea, please unmute yourself. What is another reason why you think we have this story as a part of our narrative and particularly at this point in our story? Any ideas? Could have been another test for Abraham. Very good. Okay, so we know later on at the end of the Parsha that the text explicitly states God puts Abraham to the test. God asks Abraham to sacrifice his son, Isaac. And we all know how that turns out. The the text doesn't say it explicitly, but the rabbis tell us that God actually puts Abraham through a battery of tests in order to make sure that he is the right person to be the father of a new nation. So God might be trying to see how Abraham will respond to this as well. Good, good Irving. Um, Any other ideas as to why this story here at this point? What is it trying to do for us or help us see? Okay so we'll keep talking about it. Thank you Irving for for your idea. Yes. Um, another way that we tend to use this story is um, you know Abraham kind of falls in out of the middle of nowhere. We, we first meet Abraham right before God first calls to him and says come here with me on a journey. And we don't know anything else about Abram's upbringing, about his childhood, but it's really important to us and to the rabbis to understand why it is that Abram slash Abraham later is chosen as the father of a new nation. So part of these stories is to give us a little bit of character exposition to see how it is that Abram responds. So It's not just God putting Avram to the test. We're also as the audience and as the inheritors of our tradition are also putting Avram to the test. Um, But today I wanna bring a different lens. Um, This story starts with an assumption. The story starts with an assumption that you can categorize people as either good or evil. If you notice, God doesn't say, you know these people they're fine most of the time but they're they do a lot of sinning or they're really they're they're not so great but they're they're sometimes and they're good but god is able to make a blanket statement here that everyone in these towns is evil and therefore they must be destroyed which if you remember again before god destroys the world in the flood god speaks about the same kind of general evil that Every organism in the world, even the land, has become so corrupt that there is not an iota of good left in them. So as I was studying the Parsha this week, that assumption leapt out at me because that is really not the way that we approach the world. So then I had to ask myself, why would the Torah introduce this paradigm for us at this point? Why might it be a helpful way of looking at the world? And I thought about the context of the book of Genesis. As we know, Genesis thinks about the world also in this dualistic kind of way. We think about day and night, light and darkness, land and sea, and inside the Garden of Eden or exiled from the Garden of Eden. So why not also think about the world in terms of these two categories, good and evil? It's it's a helpful way perhaps to start the conversation, knowing that it's only the beginning of the conversation. And so if we're given this foundation of the way that we see the world in this dualistic way, we have to be able to define our categories too of good and evil. We have to be able to start our conversation about morality in this way that's perhaps a little bit polarized because what the Torah is going to do for us ultimately and what Rabbinic Judaism does for us ultimately is it rejects the dualism, rejects the polarities and actually says, you know what, the truth of our reality lies somewhere in the middle. But because we are so close to the dawn of time, the beginning of creation, the way that we see the world has to be a little bit simplified. We start with simplicity and we go toward complexity. Even in this parsha, we start to see that if we try to live in this world of black and white of dualism that we're always going to be disappointed because if we always think that every single person on earth shares our sense of morality if every single person on earth agrees with us and the things that we think are good and the things that we think are evil we're going to be disappointed we're just going to be disappointed in the way that we believe this objective, absolute sense of morality is going to turn out for us. And not only are we going to be disappointed in these great uh, structures of morality, we're also going to be disappointed in our leaders and the people that we prop up on these pedestals, hoping that they will envision and deliver for us a particular model of morality. It just doesn't exist. And so we must not, we cannot behave as if there are people in this world that are 100% good and that there are people in this world that are 100% evil. It doesn't behoove us even to try to believe that the world works in this way. Uh, you might see where I'm going here. After the events of the last few days, I, I saw that the election was just called, but who can remember an election that lasts from Tuesday to Saturday? Um, and even in the last Several years, our political climate has forced us to believe in dualism once again, that we only see things as red and blue. We look at the electoral map, we look at the county breakdown, and we only see numbers and colors. What we forget is that each and every one of these numbers is a person, is a voter who took the time to register, who took the time to send in their ballot or to vote because they believe that their voice and their passion are part of the conversation of designing a system of justice and a system of morality. And what we have seen is that we disagree with almost half of this country, whichever color you find yourself in. And so what our political climate is trying to get us to do is revert to the Genesis model. Is revert to this primordial sense of dualism where you're either blue or you're red and there is no space in the middle for us to inhabit Um, because the way God looks at Sodom and Amara is that there is no gray they're all evil and so they must be destroyed and so what I think our Parsha asks us to do if we go back to the text is it asks us you know the hypothetical what if we did live in a world where we tried to hold both this black and white system of morality in one hand, and then try to have real life relationships at the same time. And as we, as we challenge this hypothesis and go through the experiment, we see that it's not possible. I'm gonna show you how. So God asks Abraham to sacrifice Isaac. Right? This is always a story that we contrast with the story of Sodom and Amara. Abraham has now internalized God's sense of morality, that there's either good or there's evil. There's either people who listen to God or people who don't. Abraham sees what happens to the people who don't. And Abraham does not want God to label him in that category. And so Abraham hears from God this is what you must do in order to be in the good category. You must take your son, take him up to Mount Moriah and sacrifice him to me. And so because Abraham can't see the gray, he can't see the purple, at least in our modern colorful terms. He says, okay, I guess this is what I have to do in order to be a good person, but we know what happens as a result. We know that Isaac and Abraham never speak again. We know that Sarah dies, the very next thing that we hear from her. And so even within our parsha itself, we see this intertextuality. We see this dialogue happening that sometimes this assumption that we might want to believe in that they're either good people or bad people and nothing in between is not actually a system of morality that can guide us toward creating a better world. The warning that our Parsha offers us is this, insist that you and those who agree with you are good and those who disagree with you are evil. What will happen is that you're gonna sacrifice your relationships with other people and you're gonna sacrifice the potential to form new connections with others that might bring you even new sources of inspiration, growth and love. Our Parsha reminds us, that if we insist on an absolute sense of morality, that we will ultimately be unfulfilled and deeply disappointed. If our vision is only creative and flexible and willing enough to sort people into two categories, that of good and that of evil, that we will deprive ourselves of the ability to access actually our higher vision, our higher calling, which is with God's help and with each other's help, to design a system of justice that results from shared history and empathy, curiosity and understanding, that in the sacred space that exists between two souls that may not see eye to eye, they will always insist on looking each other in the eye. Shabbat Shalom. Yes, you call us.